Hey everybody, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Real Talk podcast. We hope that these discussions will inform and inspire you to engage in your own Real Talk. Today's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Trivan. Builders of custom trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at www.trivan.com. A big thanks to them for making these conversations possible. Now, on to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to uh, this episode of Real Talk. Uh, today, we're doing something kind of interesting and something that I don't know has ever been done before in the history of our churches, per se. I know That's a, a big sell, big is, lead up. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good lead, I think. And uh, and we have uh, Mr. Chris DeBoer from Carmen, Manitoba on to discuss the happenings of the most recent synod in the Canadian Reformed Churches. So typically, you know, they release, uh, well, the Axel Synod eventually. But they have, uh, I believe, a provisional copy out. Um, I mean, maybe that terminology isn't exactly right, but uh, something in that realm. And uh, and it's just released a lot of written documents and, and folks can read through those. But I think often it just ends up being the, the attendees of Synod and a certain invested minority of people who tend to read these. So we figured, hey, let's have a podcast, chat about what happened at Synod. There's a lot of important work that goes on there. And, uh, and it would be good to discuss this with a broader group of interested parties and i think it's something we could keep do, doing in the future and for urc synods and, and whatnot too it'd be nice to to know yeah, what's going on and have some more collaboration there so for our foreign listeners um this is the uh canadian reform synod from i guess all of canada and the u.s yeah if that's for the, for the correct reform me if churches. i'm wrong yeah <laughs> yeah so uh anyways chris sorry uh, i should have gave you a chance to introduce yourself but go ahead introduce yourself and uh just tell us a little bit about your time at synod and then we'll kind of work through the various topics we want to touch sure thanks uh, lucas and tyler for having me on your podcast so uh just personally i'm uh an elder in carmen west presently i am married we have four children and uh my future day job will be principal of our local Christian school. But I didn't take that task on until August 1st, so I had some time. Uh, so I volunteered my name uh, to Regional Synod West, and uh, they appointed me to attend General Synod in Guelph. And, uh, yeah, we had an opportunity to read over 2,000 pages of material preparing for Synod. Um, we were warmly greeted by the, the congregation uh, of Guelph. They took great care of us. And then we, uh, the delegates, the 24 of us, we spent about nine and a half working days uh, going through the materials, uh, collaborating, discussing, debating, voting, uh, disagreeing, agreeing on all manner of uh, topics that came to uh, General Synod. Um, so General Synod for the Canadian Reformed Churches takes place once every three years. And uh, our church federation is divided into two regions, east and west. And each region sends uh, six ministers and six elders for a total then of 24 delegates. Um, and so having that synod once every three years, you can understand that there's a pile of material kind of building up. Um, so, for example, if you don't like a decision that we made, a church might be working on an appeal already now, 
but it won't get dealt with for three years, mm. right? So you have lots of time to uh, to read the acts, to contemplate, to discuss, debate, and send overtures and things like that. Um, so anyway, I really enjoyed my time there. It was a, a time of, yeah, fairly intense work, but good collaboration, uh, good spirit of harmony. And when we disagreed, we disagreed with respect. And and uh, and I really appreciated that of all the delegates there. Well, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned right off the top, we wanted to talk about uh, just the hosting church and like what goes all into that. And I was pretty surprised to hear some of the things that they actually have to undergo to even uh, host this in Guelph. So what, uh, maybe give us a little bit of a, just, you know, what, yeah. what does that involve? So the first thing that I noticed when I walked into this beautiful building, actually Guelph has, was that they, they must have rented a stage that they could integrate into their, their pulpit area. So that was already quite something. And they, uh, they would have rented office chairs. Uh, they would have rented maybe some printers and what have you else. And they, they set up their network. So it was very easy to hook into. Um, they also arranged breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So the delegates would go to the church for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and they arranged accommodations for us, of course, as well. And if we needed rides to and from the airport, they took care of it. And not just for the 24 delegates, but also for the uh, fraternal delegates, those people who come from other churches to visit the Synod, they had to be taken care of as well. And they were. Like, the way Guelph took care of the delegates and all of us there was top-notch. One of the things I think was unique to, uh, to Guelph and maybe will become a new practice. They had a fridge in kind of their foyer area where we ate our meals, but they always had water bottles. They had baking always there. They had apples, banana, fruit, whatever. So if you were just peckish or you needed a break from your committee work, you could just go there and grab something. And um, and the coffee was almost always Tim Horns fresh. Wow. Not quite, but... <laughs> the coffee was always available when you needed it, and it tasted great. So that was good. Yeah. Very well done. Setting the bar high, eh? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Maybe that was a precedent set by previous synods, and now they had to keep up with it. No, okay. But I think each synod is getting bigger. We have to be careful that we don't make it a uh, um, that delegates only want to go for the food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that doesn't hurt, though, knowing everything is taken care of, though, so... Okay. Yes, and this was my first time at a synod, so you're a little bit nervous, a bit anxious. It can be a bit overwhelming with all the material and, and a little bit of the weightiness of the decisions you're making. But once you're there and you have that warm welcome already, it, it actually does it does make the work much easier. Right. So who are the who are the delegates? Like you mentioned, there there's uh, six ministers and six elders from each of the regional synods. But um, yeah, like who are these people? Like, do they are they often older folks have been in the, you know, men who have been in the um, um, church in the ministry long or or uh, yeah, office bearers a few times or um, yeah, what kind of experience is required and stuff like that? So I would say from the minister side, uh, they're all they can be their age can vary quite a bit. Some were right near retirement. Um, and I think the youngest minister 
this time would have been 45, 46, but often they're younger um, because that's their full-time job. It's part of the, the work that is expected of the churches. Mm-hmm. On the side of the elders, yeah, generally you would have elders well into their 50s and 60s, I would say. Um, I was the youngest one by far, um, well. and the circumstances allowed me to attend. Uh, but yeah, it's hard. You're going to be away. You can count on two working weeks. And with this in it, um, if you can't fly, you have to drive. So uh, there were some more days off. And this synod could have extended into a third week. Um, uh, We talked uh, about psalms and hymns and stuff like that. We'll get into that later, I'm sure. But we we didn't make certain decisions. And not making decisions made this synod only nine and a half working days. But had we gone through all the hymns and psalms, for example, it could well have gone into a third week. So not everybody can can manage. And, And there's some discussion let's say, in my neck of the woods, and having ascended in May, the farmers are all in the field, and many of our elders are farmers. Now, when is it a good time to have ascended? That's a great question, of course. Um, Regional synod votes uh, about in deciding who gets to go or who will go to general synod. So in, in the West, all the ministers are on a, on a slate, as it were. You can vote for any of the ministers. And then for the elders, there's a list given of brothers who are willing to serve for that period of time. It can be a challenge to get enough elders even willing to go. Um, so if you are an elder and you have some of that time, then I would encourage you to put your name forward. Um, it is an important task. Um, and it's and it's an, it can be and was for me an enjoyable task. So then, what happens is we go through a ballot list. So we start voting, and of course, ministers and elders who get no votes, we're done. But eventually, you just keep going over and over until you get um, the majority of those regional synod delegates voted for you, and then you're delegated. And that would have been from east and west. And then that synod would have sent credentials. They would have sent to General Synod, these are the list of delegates, and these are the alternates. Because sometimes a minister or elder can't go, but we get a few brothers on And at General Synod Guelph, I think we had one alternate. Okay, okay, sweet. Yeah, cool. Yes. Well, you go ahead if you have a question. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's a pretty good way of uh, describing how it all comes together and how it's instituted. Now, um, on the layout of the Acts of Synod, um, what all goes into that different, uh, yeah, observations that that go into that decision and the considerations you're making? Um, How how does Synod uh, approach that topic? So, yeah, thanks for that question, Lucas. You, uh, You mentioned something about instituting Synod. And so what I described earlier was how you get there. But once you're there, actually, in order to uh, constitute synod, we have to now have a vote for who gets to serve as chairman, vice chairman, first clerk, and second clerk. And we do the same thing there. You have your votes. In the Canadian Reformed churches, we have a tradition of 
um, getting a chairman from the opposite region. So because General Synod Guelph was in the east, we get a chairman from the west and, and vice versa. That's been a long-standing tradition. And so once those four brothers are voted to their respective tasks, then um, those four brothers, they divide up all the work among the delegates and they set up little committees and were assigned different tasks to, to work through. Um, one of the first things we did was to make a decision about how to publish the acts uh, of Synod. So in the past, you would have had um, the materials listed and then whether that material was admissible or not, I suppose. But then you get what's called observations. And observations were a summary of the material. So if you come from Cornerstone Church and you wrote a letter regarding the removal of him cap, of the him cap, the observations would have said, Hamilton Cornerstone agrees with the overture and suggests we remove the him cap or not. And it would have gone through each of those submissions. And then it would have gone to another category called considerations. And there you interact with the content from the observations. And then you get recommendations, which are kind of your decisions that are either adopted or not adopted. What we ended up doing is we said, here's the material. Here's the admissibility, whether you can deal with it or not. And then we had the decision. Synod decided, one, two, three, and then gave grounds for those decisions or for that decision. The challenge in this new format, new to us at least, is do you provide evidence that you've dealt with the submissions from the churches? So now Hamilton Cornerstone won't find necessarily any evidence that Synod read your submission or what they even thought of it. So we trust, of course, the delegates would have read it. Now, at least we trust that we did so. But there's no, there's not necessarily any interaction, what we think about your submission. And I think the churches are going to have to grapple with this. Do they like this new formatting? Do they like the setup? Or will they be disappointed? Because there's not that, that transparent evidence that those submissions were dealt with substantively. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Why was a, a change made in that process and, and what brought that about? Yeah, I think the concern was that sometimes you would read um, all these observations, considerations, recommendations, and then at the very bottom you would get not adopted. So you think, oh, I've got all that, and in the end, it wasn't adopted. So then you turn to page or two or three, and you find all that information again, and it is adopted. So the intention was to make it more reader-friendly. I think, personally, it certainly is going to be shorter. <laughs> the, the, the acts of synod will be shorter. Um, but I don't think it's going to be as rich. Mm. And 
Will more people read it because it's shorter? Maybe. Um, but I think churches are going to be disappointed because they're not sure that their concerns were heard or how they were dealt with. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how churches respond. Interesting. Is there is there a way in the new format that there is recognition of how much support or how uh, maybe the nuance of the support for a certain issue was? Um, or is that just totally eliminated? Yeah, that's totally eliminated. Uh, right. Yeah. And <clears throat> yeah, so it's an interesting tough, yeah. question because, you know, one of the things you deal with is, does this live in the churches? How do the churches think about something? Mm-hmm. I think that's an important consideration. But there are also others who would say it's not the number, but the argument itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's truth to both of those things, of course. Like the hymn cap, as an example, is not so much right or wrong, but wisdom, arguments for, nuance, concerns, etc. Um, but if if the majority, the vast majority of churches said, we're happy, just leave us alone. We're tired of changing the book of praise. So maybe it's not a principled position, but maybe it's just practical. Stop messing around with the book of praise for a while. Mm. Well, then for Synod to say, well, let's just change it anyway, because nobody has a principled position against it. Well, that's true. You could do that. But is it practical? Is it wise? Right. So sometimes you're considering what the letters are saying specifically, and other times you're kind of looking at the broader picture. Right. So, yeah, I guess the yeah the challenge is there's no way for a church who supported one side to see, I guess, how many other churches supported as well as how many opposed and kind of take that feedback in with the decision, I guess, right? So. Yeah, so not in the new format. In the old format, yes, but not in this new one. Right. Is this format, I, I thought I heard this format was from the URC Synod. Is that how they... Um, was that yeah, other churches have used something similar? Although it was interesting, the case was made particularly citing Australia. Okay, but Australia started to include more of a summary of the materials under that heading. So when you read ours, you'll see materials and you'll see the name of the church and then a bracket with the agenda number on it. That's it for for most of the decisions. Australia, they started to add two or three sentences, just kind of summarizing the main point of that submission. Okay. Uh, So I think Australia is kind of going more to what we used to do, and we are going to the old way that Australia used to do. So maybe we'll find a happy medium shortly. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about like, how does, how do the topics get there? Like, so I mean, I guess a basic understanding is that things live in the churches. Churches submit a lot of times to classes where things are dealt with on a smaller level and they move up from there to regional synod, then to general synod. But how does a piece of, uh, or a concern then become an issue that's tabled at general synod? Um, maybe you talk to that, and then the, and then also, how does like how do all the churches give their input into that um, in a, in a formal way that can actually be dealt with? Right. So I would say there's probably three ways that something gets a general synod. 
the one way is by an appeal. So if a church or individual thinks that there was a mistake, they were wronged, they go to, let's say, classes. If they disagree with the decision of classes, they shouldn't start the whole process over. What they do is they go to regional synod and say, classes made a mistake. Here's how classes wronged us. Then regional synod makes a decision. And if you disagree with that, then you take that to general synod and you say, this is how regional synod uh, erred against us. Uh, and then general synod will have to deal with that. And then you could appeal a decision of one general synod to the next general synod. So that's appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the second way would be an overture. So for example, you want to, um, well, the one would be, let's say, yeah, church orderly, I, I got to pick an example that works. Let's do the removal of the hymn cap again, because there were overtures that came from regional synod east and regional synod west. Now I'm from regional synod west, so I know that process a little better. Uh, an individual church sent what they would like to have as an overture to their classes, classes specific uh, east in this case, I believe. This was the Church of Vernon. Classes Pacific East adopted the overture. So now it's no longer Vernon's overture. It's the overture of Classes Pacific East. And they sent it off to uh, Regional Synod West. At that point, all the churches in Regional Synod West could have interacted with the overture, but only two did, I think maybe three. Then Regional Synod West actually changed the overture considerably, but it, it became their overture. So then that overture came from Regional Synod West to General Synod, all with about removing the HEMCAP number. But let's say Regional Synod West didn't agree with all the argumentation of class-specific East or Vernon, so they kind of reworked it and made it their own. Hmm. So when they submitted it to General Synod, now all the churches would have gotten that overture uh, months in advance and could write a response, interact with the overture's proposal, and the delegates would have gotten that six weeks prior, approximately, to uh, General Synod. And then the same happened in Regional Synod East. Right. And so the interaction from every congregation, what kind of form does that take? Like, so we, so, yeah, in Cornerstone, like well, I mentioned to you, like uh, I sit on the Cornerstone Council as a deacon. So we had the chance to interact with all this material, obviously not the 2000 pages that you had to, but, uh, but a significant chunk of stuff. So, but we had the opportunity to interact with these overtures and, and all the decisions. So um, how does that, uh, interaction get formal, formalized or supported or, or uh, opposed from all the churches? And then how does that show up to a delegate like yourself? Yeah, so at, at the general synod level, Guelph there too. I mean, talk about the work that they had to do. They organized all the material. So we got a uh, uh, shared uh, Google Drive and uh, they had the material divided by overtures and by 
appeals and so on. And so what they did for us is one file had the overtures, another file had um, material from the churches regarding the overtures, and then that was divided by each overture. So again, from overture, regional synod west regarding the hymn cap, there was a separate folder of all the letters in favor or against the overture of regional synod west. So as a delegate, I downloaded all those files, I opened them up and saved them, highlighted, made some comments on them to prepare myself uh, for the discussion. And that was for all the overtures, all the appeals and so on. So Guelph did a tremendous job. And in fact, they also created an agenda where the material was uh, hyperlinked. So I could click on the agenda item and it, and it came uh, to where I needed to be. Wow. So that's, that's yeah, a 21st century that's church. That's good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a good stuff. Oh. And then the, uh, just so briefly, the third way somebody gets to general synod is by a report from our standing committees. So we have standing committees for the book of praise. We have interchurch standing committees. We have the, uh, the, the, the seminary is kind of a committee of sorts or board of governors. So anyway, these committees, they send reports to the churches and to the synod. And then the churches can interact with those reports as well. And so that would be the third way that material gets to synod. Those, those committees are from or are appointed by the previous synod to do work? Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, okay, that's right, right. right. Standing yeah. committees. Okay, cool. Uh, can we talk about overtures then for a minute? Um one of those three ways that that things uh, get to general synod. Uh, you mentioned in, we were talking about just how to structure this episode and, and what topics to hit. And uh, you made the comment that people typically, or people, I guess, churches typically engage with overtures more at a general synod level as opposed to a regional synod level. Uh, why do you think that's, uh, that happens? Yeah, you, you know, I wonder if we've come into this this notion that general synod will deal with it. Um, so just again, if you look at regional synod west and the overture from classes specific east about the hymn cap, I think three churches sent a letter to um, regional synod. But if you go under the file of that overture, many more churches from the west sent letters interacting with that, with that overture to General Synod. So I wonder if we're treating Regional Synod with the integrity that we ought. I wonder if more churches should be interacting at that Regional Synod level and expressing their concerns and or support for uh, an overture, rather than saying, well, we'll just deal with it when it gets to General Synod. Um, I'm not sure why that's developed that way, um, but it's, it's an important issue because when, when an overture comes from a regional synod, kind of the assumption is that half the federation supports it. You know, that, that's kind of the idea there. Mm. But then when you read the letters from the churches, well, there's not that same kind of support. And so... For for me personally, when something comes like the hymn cap comes from two regional synods, 
you almost think it should be a slam dunk. If two regional synods say the same thing, and all the churches have already had opportunity to interact with these overtures, well, well then, how, how like I would be very careful to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, the interaction with these two overtures was much stronger at the general synod level, right? So, so then you're interacting with the material from the churches that you now have, which they didn't have at regional synod. Hmm. So some, some will argue, one synod did in fact argue in the past that you should be able from a local church to overture directly to synod. I disagree with that, however. Um, but there, the point was, we're just going through the motions sometimes when we go through classes and regional synod, just send it on. And I think what we need to do is encourage the churches to interact substantially at the classes level and at the regional synod level. And maybe next general synod only has 1,500 pages to deal with. Yeah. (laughs) So a little more robust trust in the, uh, yeah, like the process um, in terms of spread out and different levels of of power, if you want to call it that, and checks and balances. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Um, trust is, is a good, uh, actually segue into that as well. Uh, you had here on point number four, that Synod delegates a lot of trust to, uh, the committees that they set up and then also the committees trust Synod that, uh, they'll make a, you know, a decision in accordance with the work that the committee has done. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about how the committees get struck and the kind of work that goes on in, in that regard? Sure. So, uh, when we talk about committees, I think we're talking about standing committees. Yeah. And these standing committees are uh, appointed by the General Synod, and the members are appointed then for three years. But there is an agreement that in some of these subcommittees or some of these standing committees, members can be appointed up to three or four times. Right. So we're not always having change over on these committees. Um, but Every general synod does the appointing, um, and there's usually a retirement schedule. And of course, we we try that the synod will try to pick brothers, usually sometimes brothers or sisters that that have certain skill set. So the standing committee for the Book of Praise, often they'll choose uh, ministers who have some musical background. But that committee deals with the forms, the confessions. So any of the ministers, in a sense, could serve on that committee. They often choose um, musicians to serve on that committee as well, as you're dealing with the music, obviously. Um, But you could also choose other uh, people who have an interest, who who write, who who enjoy writing and reading. Um, They would serve well on that committee. Um, on the Interchurch Relations Committee, yeah, I'm not really sure how they come. The, the committee itself recommends names. So perhaps the committees have done a bit of research. They know of some of the people that they can recommend. So Synod does trust, in that sense, the committees uh, to make those recommendations. But that thing about trust uh, that I wanted to comment on a little bit as well is how often at Synod 
we say trust the committee. Like we trust the committee that it did its work. And of course that's true, but we also work together. And I think the committees trust us as Synded delegates to do our work. Synded uh, committees are making recommendations. They might have disagreed, but you know what? Let's just, let's send that on to Synod because Synod has to make the decisions. And if we make a decision that is different than a committee, a committee's recommendation, that is not now to say we don't trust the committee. No, Synod had to make the decision. And so one of the delegates there said, yes, trust, but verify. And I really appreciated that. And this is really important, um, not only with regards to Synod, but also as we live together in a federation, and you know from some, some of your previous podcasts, the Federation of Canadian Reformed Churches is getting more diverse, right? And, and now when you ask questions about this diversity, don't you trust us? Don't you trust our classes? Don't you trust? And now you're, you're, you're put on that self-defense. Oh, of course I trust you. But this isn't a matter of trust. This is a matter of collaboration, caring, collaboration, and taking the responsibility that you have been given seriously. So the Standing Committee for the Book of Praise takes very seriously its mandate. No doubt, you can see it in its work. But Synod delegates have been given a mandate too, and that is to go through that work and make decisions about their recommendations. And we have to take that job seriously too. And so I think it's really important that we don't just fall into this trap of saying, trust the committee. Like That's, that's not fair. And the committee trusts us to do our work too. So let's not, let's, let's be careful with that, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that um, as a, yeah, like a two-way street. <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah. So, do you have any other questions before we get into like the yeah let's, decisions? We've, we've set a good background, I think, to how Chris, Senate functions. Do you have anything that you wanted to say other than get into the material and? Oh, let's go. So, all right, all right. I it. mean, we've been thinking about this for although what what's it been like two weeks since you've been done? Three? No, I think we're about three weeks now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, three weeks away from a two-week project isn't so bad. But uh, well, we talked a lot about the hymn caps. So why don't we start there? Um, can you give us a maybe some background on you want to give a background on where it came from i mean i think you already did that but then like um how it got there and what was the issue and what what was the recommendations right so uh, it's in 2004 the the standing committee for the book of praise uh recommend they were encouraged to look at more hymns and so on and so forth and they had come up with a recommendation of a 100 hymn cap you'll remember at that time the book of praise had 65 hymns Right, the hymn one uh, A and hymn, hymn B, hymn one B, and then a few more hymns. So they had this hundred hymn cap decided at 2004. And there was a decision because Psalms have primacy or the principal place in worship, we will have the 100 hymn cap. And when you read 2007 and other acts of synod, that statement 
of the primacy of psalm singing is echoed. And in fact, in different synods in 2004 and, and 2007, I believe, we commented on the growing hymns in Holland. And we told them, be careful. Be careful. Don't, don't have unlimited hymns, etc. So since 2004, we've had this hymn cap of 100. We have this whole process of adding hymns that took, took a long time, as you'll know, right? And I think right around 2013, we finally had an additional 19 hymns added to our book of praise. So we had 65, and we are now at 85, and we have 19 because hymn 1B became hymn 2. So we have room for 15 more hymns, but just consider that already then we had this room for 100, and we only got to 85. So the standing committee was really careful, right? Um, and, and some will argue, and I understand, I have empathy for the argument, that the standing, standing committee didn't seem to hear that the churches wanted more uh, hymns that 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 um, were part of the broader Christendom, right? They picked uh, good hymns, no doubt, uh, but not a lot of hymns, besides maybe Greatest Thy Faithfulness, that were part of that broader Christendom. Mm. And I think that left a bit of a, a sour taste in, in some in some people. So already we have this cry for more hymns and alternative psalm melodies. So there's an appeal. We want to have, we removed the hymn cap, and Synod said, now this should be done, or at least it was understood that this should be done through an overture. And as I mentioned, they came from both East and West. So then at Synod, a small group of brothers were mandated to deal with some of that material, the, the Book of Praise material. And we agreed and we worked well together on all kinds of things there. But on the hymn cap, the brothers, we didn't agree in our committee. So we had a majority report and a minority report. The majority report said, let's keep the hymn cap. And the minority report said, let's get rid of the hymn cap. Um, and then you take that to Synod and you get some feedback. And after the first round, it was not at all clear where Synod would go, right? If it was clear that Synod wanted to get rid of the hymn cap entirely, then there's no point bringing up for a vote the majority report. Like, it would have been silly. You just take it back and carry on. Mm -hmm. But at the first round, there was no clear consensus. So both parties of that committee took it back, and we cleaned up our messes and, and, and made uh, some adjustments. And then we again presented a majority and minority report. In, uh, in this case, or with all of these cases, if you have a majority and minority, you vote on the majority first, right? And of course, if it passes, then you don't have a, another discussion on the minority. Um, so we had a round of discussion. Uh, the majority report passed. Uh, it was a it was a closer vote, but it did pass. And you'll find in um, the appendix of the. Uh, Synod, the Acts of Synod, you'll find a copy of the minority report. And that doesn't always happen, but they felt it was uh, a fair thing to do. 
So you'll, you'll see the arguments that they had to remove the hymn cap. And you'll see, of course, in the acts, why um, some argued to keep the hymn cap. Is that a 50% right? uh, vote at the Senate table? Like 50 plus uh, one? No, I think you have to have more than 50% to pass something. Okay, so that's... Right? So, so yeah, if, right, if it's so a that, 50%, if it's 50%, it's a fail. 50 plus one? Or yeah, it, you, yeah okay. you'd have to have... Well, you'd have to have that at least to pass something. Uh, I think if it had been a tie, it would have been interesting. I wonder if we would have had a compromise. And, and I wonder if you can, like how that works. That didn't happen in our case. Um, but could you change the hymn cap? Like right now, as you know, we have, I think, an additional 40 hymns being proposed. So, so could there have been a move to say, let's have 120 hymn cap? That would allow us to include a whole bunch of these proposed hymns, and then we could stop. Mm. We could just stop messing around with the Book of Praise. I think there would have been an appetite for that, right? Um, but, but there isn't. Uh, if if you have to choose between two, two certain spots, a hymn cap of hundred, or no hymn cap. Yeah, then many of us are going to pick the hymn cap. Right. Because there's a concern. Is, that, is there a mechanism to make that revision at Synod, or is that something that still needs to come up from the churches? It just seems like an a inefficient way to kind of get there, but um, is that is that a possibility from the committee? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think, I guess the answer should be yes. Um, but if... So I guess the, the challenge is if some people say we should have no hymn cap, so that is from the churches. Mm. And that was from the regional synods. Get rid of the hymn cap, period. And so some of the people at synod wanted that, no hymn cap. Then the others, what you're really trying to suggest is deny the overtures. You're not coming up with a new proposal. You're coming up with Instead of accepting the overture, you're denying the overture, which means leave things the way they are. Right. So I don't think it would have been totally on side for the, the people who wanted to keep the hymn cap to say, well, let's change it. Um, could it have happened? Would those who, who wanted to get rid of the hymn cap? Would they now come back and say, well, let's change it? Maybe. But at that point, it's it's too late. Right. So, but I would say too, the there was around the hymn cap from regional synod west and from regional synod east, you get two very different perspectives. Regional synod east stressed strongly the primacy of psalm singing. That was very important. Regional Synod West, not so. In fact, they talked about there's not much difference between psalms and hymns. They're both desirable, as if they're the same. Hmm. And this is, for the Canadian Reformed churches, I think a growing question. Right? Uh, and I would say to you that more and more, we cannot assume that the answer is the primacy of psalm singing. There are more and more leaders who are suggesting that that doesn't have to be the case. And so I think that's going to be 
part of uh, the future of our churches to to grapple with. Mm. Um, and so, does the hymn cap guarantee it? No, of course not. It doesn't guarantee it. Does it help it? Oh, I think it does help it, right? But um, it will be interesting to see. Uh, probably the next synod will have to deal with an appeal uh, <laughs> about about that decision, and and maybe the next synod will will say something about we'll have a hymn cap of 120 and we'll add all these proposed hymns and then we'll leave the book of praise alone. Mm. You know, a lot of people could live with that, I right. think. Mm. But we'll what's, goes. what's happening with the proposed hymns, just out of, out of curiosity? Because um, yeah, we've been so, singing these in our churches, right? Yeah. So very interesting. So 2019 said to the standing committee of the book of praise, send some proposed psalm alternatives and hymns to the churches that they can use for testing in the worship service. Well, you're not, you're not really supposed to sing those songs in the worship service until after they've been approved by synod. So our synod dealt with two appeals that said 2019 synod was kind of offside there, saying to the churches, you can sing these in the worship service. Um, so we said, not 2019, you shouldn't have done that. In the meantime, what did we do? We approved that collection of hymns and psalms um, for testing in the churches. <laughs> so, so now we have said, we've looked at them, and now you may use them uh, provisionally in the worship service or outside the worship service for testing. And the reason why is because the vast majority, like I would say 39 out of 43 churches said, we didn't have enough time. Mm. They didn't say they liked them or they didn't like them. They said we didn't have enough time. So even though I think many of the delegates to Synod, I, I myself, I went through every one of those recommendations. I, I read all the words, I listened to all the music, I, I played them at home. I was ready to engage. I think to do integrity to the standing committee, hard work, as well as the church's wishes, like the vast majority, mm -hmm. uh, we said, let's test them for another three years. Yeah, it was it was a quick process in the churches for sure. Like yeah. it was, a, I, if I'm not mistaken, less than a year, I think we had to sing. Season. Yeah, that's pretty much, and that's during COVID. Yeah, and it was, yeah, that's right. It was like it was hard to get them all in, and yeah, we were packing them in our church, but <laughs> but yeah, and then and then to also get feedback from members, and then put the feedback together because that was a short period of time too. So, yeah, um, let alone for everyone that's in it to review them and all that. So, can I, I ask a question about the the primacy of psalm singing? So, did synod or has synod in the past? given a biblical reason as to why that should be the case? Or is it just more, as these things often are, just a question of wisdom? So I guess the argument would go something like, Psalms should be primary in the worship service because they are um, basically direct scripture. And uh, and that is is good to sing that as God has given us these tunes. Or sorry, not the tunes, but these, these lyrics. The tunes, would, <laughs> the tunes would be where the rubber hits the road and where uh, some people might not like all the tunes. So then the argument comes in for more hymns or alternate tunes, blah, blah, blah. But is it basically just we should be wise and stick to the Psalms uh, primarily because they are 
right from scripture? Um, so I, I would say that the, um, the argument often is actually in the preface of our book of praise, where they'll talk about it being the Psalter from God himself, that, that God gave a Psalter. Not only uh, is it from straight from scripture, which is true, of course, but they are the Psalms for worship that the Lord gave to his people to use for that purpose. And, um, so I think the primacy of psalm singing is argued that that's the, the book of uh, and collection of songs that the Lord gave to his people to use to worship him. Um, others might argue um, that those are Old Testament songs of worship and hymns are New Testament songs of worship. But we have to be careful that we don't equate the inspired word of God in the psalms with man's interpretation of scripture and, and hymns. And so when you go back, actually, which some of us did, I think it's 1964, and there it talks about the Psalms and other scriptural songs, preferably rhymed versions of scripture. That was the 1960s. That's what the hymns were supposed to be. Then it was uh, Psalms and uh, scriptural hymns, right? And, and then what makes the script, what makes the hymn scriptural? As in, it's not erroneous, as in, it, it's taken from scripture, like a passage, like, mm -hmm. like, uh, let us of Christ, our Lord and Savior, sing. That's taken from a scripture passage, right? Um, whereas Amazing Grace is kind of a conglomeration of ideas and, and so on. So let us of Christ, our Lord and Savior, sing. Is that the same kind of hymn as Amazing Grace? Um, so I think our churches are, are, are changing, right? And, and change isn't always wrong. But as we go through that change, and as we start adding hymns, and as we start changing our understanding of the primacy of psalm singing, um, I think we're going to... You're going to get more diversity in our churches, and uh, yeah, for better or for worse, I suppose. Okay, that's when we lean on uh, the wisest men that we can come up with to <laughs> to, to deliberate over these things, too. So, um, yeah, I mean, we should probably move right along. Well, and, we got, and the next sin might take a very different perspective. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, should we just continue down the uh, list of things that were deliberated over? Um, I think the next one we have here is the Lord's Supper form. So um, there was a an overture, I believe, to get rid of the bracketed qualifier in the Lord's Supper form that said the sorry the abbreviated Lord's Supper form right that said for use in the second service. Um, and yeah. I don't know if it also included to shorten the the form or if that was another recommendation. But uh, maybe you speak to that one. Yeah, just just on Lord's Supper in general, I would say the. Uh... Yeah, the overture, the proposal was to get rid of the bracketed qualifier. So that would allow churches to use the shorter form, the abbreviated form, as a regular occurrence. So, of course, back in the day, they had Lord's Supper in the morning and in the afternoon. And so the, the shorter form was used for that afternoon service. Um, now, we got rid of that bracketed qualifier. So you can envision that some churches will use them on a rotating basis, one time the long form, one time the shorter form, or they'll use the long form once a year. They don't even have to use the long form. 
there's there's no rule on that. So that's now in the freedom of the churches. The other issue with regards to Lord's Supper form uh, was this desire to have a new, shorter form so that churches could make use of it, or maybe more forms, so that churches could make use of it um, if they were having Lord's Supper on a, on a weekly basis, let's say. Um, and so that overture included some suggestions. Uh, it was interesting. The overture came from Regional Synod East, and it wasn't actually clear to me, at least, if Regional Synod East adopted the whole overture as it came to them, because they gave some considerations and they commented that they liked what Ancaster had said or somebody else had said about setting up a committee. But the but the um, original overture didn't have that in there. So mm. we had to kind of make a decision as to where to go exactly. In the end, we decided to mandate the Standing Committee for the Book of Praise to review and or write one or more shorter forms than the current abbreviated form. So right now, if you are a church that wants to celebrate Lord's Supper more frequently, you can make use, liberal use of the shorter form. And in three years, we will likely have uh, one, two, or three or more shorter forms that can be used to have Lord's Supper again more frequently. Hmm, nice. Is that a is that was that a common um, uh, desire from the churches that uh, more frequent uh, Lord's Supper? That's something I've been hearing, uh, just you know, in general. But yeah, I think it's it's living like you, you hear it more sometimes in that missional context. I think. Uh, so a lot of these church plants, and we have one too in uh, in Manitoba. Um, and there's yeah, there does seem to be a desire to use uh, the Lord more frequently. Um, and I think other churches are like some churches have it four times a year, some have it six, some have it eight. Um, so I do think that that is um, getting momentum. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure how strong the desire is for all these other forms. I think a lot of people see that shorter form having gotten, having gotten rid of the bracketed qualifier. I think that's a fairly short form. Hmm. Um, nevertheless, there's nothing wrong with having a shorter form. So uh, we'll see what the standing committee for the book of praise comes up with. Yeah. I heard someone say that that short form excludes something. I, yeah, I would have to look into it. We could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> definitely, definitely. But yeah, just like to make sure that all the elements of that longer form, I mean, obviously it was written in a way for a reason. So to make sure that all those elements are really there to help all of us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to understand what it is all about. So, Well, yeah. just something I on a brief comment there is now with that new system, that church might never know how Cinda dealt with that concern. Right. Yeah. And that's that's I think that the hard part of not having observations anymore, hmm. right? Because you don't know, and and you won't know, but all you do because you're a, you were a council member, but otherwise you won't know what their concern was because that went directly to to send it even, right? And so actually, you might not even have seen that as a council member, right? Yeah, so, I don't think so anyway, it's just I find again it's just an example of you might not even find it back. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. 
Okay. So, well, we'll have to ask you then. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check their, uh, the Real Talk archives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, developing this greater coherence between uh, churches of different uh, different backgrounds and different federations? Uh, Senate obviously discussed this, and they struck a new committee on this, where they tasked an existing committee. How did that go? Yeah, so the inter-church relations, um, we used to have two committees, uh, a committee for churches abroad and a committee for churches in North America, with whom we have ecclesiastical fellowship. And what this Senate did is we they, they, they sent a combined report about the structure of the committee and about interrelations and other things too, of course. But what they had done is they wanted to combine these two committees and that would allow for a greater coherence in their work, right? Because sometimes you go to a, uh, let's say a North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council meeting called NAPARC. Well, that's of course focused on North America, but the international ones have some connections. And then there's something called the ICRC, International Conference of Reformed Churches. So the international committee would go there, but a bunch of the North American churches would also go there. And so there was sometimes this overlap. Um, and then are we always consistent? If the one committee interacts with churches one way and the other committee has kind of gone in a different way, you're not consistent uh, between your church relations. So our, our Senate agreed to combine the two committees. I think the short form is CER, but I can't remember exactly what it stands for. Committee, oh, Committee of Ecumenical Relations, probably. Um, but the other challenging topic there was the category of relations. So in the Canadian Reformed Churches, practice or yeah, I would say theoretically speaking, we've always been all or nothing. You're either in ecclesiastical fellowship or you're not. And yeah, that has some practical consequence. And we treat all these churches the same. And, and prior to 2001, we didn't have a lot of interchurch relations. But since 2001 and beyond, we've had a growing, we've been, we've had a lot more uh, interchurch relations. So they wanted to have a category three, two, and a one. Now I might get these numbers backwards, but I think category one is where you are just meeting each other, getting to know each other. Uh, but but you are sitting at table together at a at a at a meeting. So this isn't just everybody at Nay Park is category one. That wouldn't be the case. Mm. Um, you would look at let's say the PCA. I don't think our interchurch relations has ever really sat down with the PCA, even though they're part of Nay Park. So right. PCA would be not non-categorized. But we're just getting into a conversation, let's say, with the Heritage Reformed Congregation or churches, the Heritage Reformed churches. That, let's say, six years ago would have been Category 1. They sat down together. They said, who are you? Who are we? We have a similar history. Here's our differences. They're just chatting. Hmm. Then there would be something called a Category 2. And this became the controversy um, between a majority and minority report that came to synod, what should be 
part of category two. Um, let's say for the simple purposes, one, one group said category two is still governed by general synod, but it's not as intense as ecclesiastical fellowship. It's not going to be as intense as category three. So, for example, our relationship with the Presbyterian Church of Korea, Kosin, we don't understand their language. We're culturally very different. We have a very different um, form of government. We have a very different set of confessional standards. They're Presbyterian, Westminster, so we know them. Um, but our histories and our culture and everything is just so different. So why don't we have a category two that says, we know you, we love you, we trust that the Lord is at work in you as faithful churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not going to go to their synod every year. We're not going to take the time to have their acts translated into English and read them and study them and all that other stuff. So it's just going to be less intense. And then they would be a category three, which would be what we would call ecclesiastical fellowship. And that's where that is intense, where you're, you're working together, you're talking with each other about all kinds of important issues and keeping an eye on each other, if you will, right? Making sure that we remain faithful. Mm -hmm. So so that was kind of, you can kind of understand that logic. Okay. The, the controversy came with the other side, where they wanted a category two that could be developed at a local level. And it, uh, I really hope I, I summarize it accurately uh, because I, I'd hate to uh, misspeak here. But the idea is that you could have, uh, let's say you're in, in uh, Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canadian Reformed Church, and you are having a growing relationship. You, you get to know by dialogue, the Free Reformed Church in Chilliwack. And you like that minister, you have good, good uh, relations. So then what Chilliwack could do is go to classes Pacific East and say, we want to have a category two relationship with this Free Reformed Church congregation here. That's not all the Free Reformed Churches, and it's not applicable to all the churches in the Canadian Reformed Churches, they would want it just to be local with the, the advice of classes. So that was, the, that was the proposal. And then it would also include that other part we talked about. So category two in this other version, the controversial part would have been you can do it locally. You don't mm -hmm. have to wait for the Federation as a whole. Right. And... Um, did that also so going, did that also involve pulpit uh, fellowship, like or um, oh yeah, pulpit exchange. Yeah. So that would be yeah, pulpit uh, fellowship, exchanging of uh, minister, uh, yeah, ministers and members, guests at the Lord's Supper. Right. Okay. So uh, the, the practical application of that isn't just uh, yeah, ongoing discussion at a higher level, but also within the church. Yeah, it would be very practical, like into church. It would be the same as ecclesiastical fellowship. In essence, right, mm -hmm. the same as the category one, except the category or category three rather, except the category three is determined by synod, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, and I think, but the category three would have to encompass the entire federation, whereas this right. category, adjusted category two, could be applied locally. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes some sense to me. What concerns did uh, did the men at Senate have about that? So one of the, the concerns was whether these, these two different reports, if they had enough time as committees to discuss them. So we, we wonder, uh, because there was some pressure from these committees to get the reports out. So did the minority and majority, and don't forget, these have to be from two committees at the time. The CRCA and the CCCMA, the North American and the International, had to. So we thought this is a major change in our interchurch relations. We want you guys to go back and have another discussion on this. Is there a better way? Is there a compromise? Is there a category three, two, and a 1A and a 1B? Because one of the concerns, of course, is this term reformed confessions. So let's take a different example. Let's take a Reformed Baptist church and one local congregation, let's call it Carmen West. We don't have a lot of churches around here, so it's a safe example. Carmen West finds a Reformed Baptist church in Winnipeg. And the Reformed Baptist church has the Second London Confession. It's quite reformed. It's based on the Westminster Confession, um, but it, of course, goes into the realm of believer's baptism. So then Carmel West would go to Classes Manitoba and say, we want to have a, a, a Category 2 relation with this Reformed Baptist church. Well, should we? Well, maybe, maybe Classes agrees. So now we have one church in our federation that has decided that the Second London Confession is a Reformed Confession and that this Reformed minister can preach on its pulpit. That's going to drive us further apart, right? So who decides what a Reformed Confession is? And then if, let's say, a church, some other church, disagrees with that decision, do they have the right to appeal? And then to whom do they appeal? Right? If, if they say, you can't have a Reformed Baptist minister on your pulpit, it's against the confessions, obviously, because we're baptizing, we're baptizing children confessions, and it's against Scripture, we would argue, and it's against the church order. So if a, a church in B.C. was concerned with what Carmen West was doing, how do they deal with that? Do they write an appeal to, to classes Manitoba? Would we even accept an appeal from outside the classes? Because that's a question that some people are struggling with these days. And so it just becomes more individualistic, more congregationalistic, mm. instead of as a whole federation, we're doing this together. And we help each other and, and we're we're consistent with each other rather than pockets here now, everybody kind of doing their own thing. Why, why not provide uh, like a list of reform confessions? that would be, you know, that could serve as a guide for local classes, classes, I guess, for making these decisions. Yeah, like, you that could be that. a compromise. Well, and that's what these people have to have a discussion about, right? These right. This there, yeah. relations. And, and there's, almost an, yeah. there's almost an endless spectrum, right? Like you get down, well, okay, this one, but why not that one? Well, this one, why not that one? So I guess you got to draw a line at some point. So then it's just a matter of where you draw the line and stuff. I would be more interested, like, if Carmen West were to do that, Carmen East, do they, because Carmen West has now adopted this, would they just like, 
I don't know, maybe they also have decent relationships. Would they onboard on that? Would the classes then make a decision? Well, our entire classes is going to do it. Um, and then, yeah, like, yeah, like what you said, like, how does it go from there? Like, um, does then the regional synod say, hey, you know what? You know what? We also have a similar situation over here. Let's just do it in the whole West instead of yeah. just, yeah, because, you know, this one in, in Chilliwack is actually pretty similar and the one in Fraser Valley is pretty similar. So let's just, we'll make a big lump instead of, and then leave the East out of it. Or like, yeah, you never know how it goes, I guess. No, maybe that's part of the, the point. I mean, the idea, I mean, some people will argue then that that's the point, that we want this to be organic. We want it to be from the bottom up, right? Rather from the top down. Yeah. Right now, of course, it is often from the bottom up. Our relations with the Reformed Church of the United States, RCUS, started because Carmen um, got to know a, a congregation across the border. And then they recommended it. And then the Inter-Church Relations Committee started investigating. And they, they said, yeah, this is a faithful church. And they made their recommendation. Let's have ecclesiastical fellowship. And in 2001, we, we did that. So we do that all together. Hmm. And I think the other challenge we're going to face, and, and maybe this is a, a topic ah, I have to do more study on, but really, what is the church? Right? I know you have Evan Bauman on. Uh, some time ago, and, and I understand the, the more pure, less pure thing, and I'm 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 with you there. Um, but does that make everything a church? Right. So, mm. what, what is where does this church gathering work? What does it look like? And um, if, uh, everything that calls itself reformed uh, church. Uh, uh, there was another podcast uh, somewhere else where they're talking about anybody who confesses the Apostles' Creed, you're in. Uh, right? And I just, I think this is a real struggle for us in, in uh, 2022. Um, if you go back to, to older articles of Clarion in the 80s and 90s, we defended why we fence the Lord's Supper the way we do, mm. right? Because the church was an objective thing. It was not subjective and it wasn't all everybody's part of the church and where you worship is kind of secondary, but we, we, we seem to be going in that direction. And when we say interchurch relations becomes a local matter, I think it's just going to challenge us at the, at the very least, it's going to be a challenge for us. What is the church? And if one class that says, yeah, this, this church fits within the definition of what a church is, other churches might say, what are you doing? That does not fit. So uh, I'm mm. concerned, but we'll see where that all goes. Mm. Yeah. Well, this at least generates a discussion. So, no, it's good. I, I'm glad we're doing this because it really brings like, uh, we, we had thought about like, um, what, why do we need to talk about synod? But this is like brings the issues into, you know, hopefully we can bring it to, you know, just the lay people like ourselves so we can, yeah, I hope so. We'll parse this out. So, <laughs> yeah. It seems like there should be some more study and some more thought and some clear definitions given to what is the church and, and some sort of uh, leadership from synod in that way would probably be helpful. Because, I yeah, I don't know. It seems to me like it, that would be if there were clear guidelines given on what is a reformed church, like that would fall within the scope of a local church with the advice of, you know, a slightly broader assembly being able to to kind of rein that in if there were clear standards to work off of yeah i don't know that's personally that's just kind of how i feel about it but uh yeah. we'll send you but, I think, yeah. but if you take uh 
right? So is it possible that there's a local, faithful, Christian Reformed Church in North America? Yeah, absolutely, there is. Yeah. It's very possible. Yeah. Um, would we then have, on a local level, that kind of ecclesiastical fellowship? Because that's that's the easier example to pick as an anti-example, right? If you will, like an anti-type, is they have a Reformed confession. Yep. So for some reason, there's there's and it might be a good reason, but they refuse to leave that federation of churches. Maybe they want to be a, a light. They want to be the salt there. They want to have influence. So they're going to stay. But they're feeling lonely. They're feeling isolated. And they would like fellowship. Yep. Now, could that be an example of that local uh, relations? And then what's the implication of that? If you say to that church, yes, faithful church, um, does its relation with the Christian Reformed churches in North America automatically bar that relation from happening in the past it did on a federational level yeah right i think the rcus had a relationship with the christian reformed churches and we said because you have that relationship that's a stumbling block for us right um we didn't join nay park uh that north american uh committee thing we didn't join that until after the christian reformed church was at least suspended, mm. Mm. right? Yeah. So, so it has all kinds of layers and implications and consequences. Um, but if you believe, of course, as we do, the local church is the important point. So, but then it, how, it rattles yeah. our brain. Maybe we have to grasp with how do you review those kind of things too? Because at a federative level, at the general synod, you have this committee who's reviewing and interacting with our relationship relations every three years. And then reporting to send in on how everything is going with, I mean, I saw a report that was like, I mean, I didn't get through that one. That was one of the ones I didn't read, but that, or probably the only one I didn't read, honestly, but it outlined the relationship we have with all different, all around the world. Like, and I mean, it was very detailed in like terms of like, you know, what we're doing, what interactions have we had? What have we heard they're doing? Their synod, our synod, like, and then, um, but yeah, if, if it's left to a local level, how do you? interact with those relations and, and review them and do you leave that up to a, a classes or a, a, yeah yeah unanswered question so, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there so i think at the very least it's good to have another round and also for the for this new committee then our committee on ecumenical relations to hear directly the concerns of the churches so we get this report the committee doesn't get the feedback. Synod gets the feedback, mm. right? It's not like the Psalms and hymns. So we get this whole this category thing, and we have two different perspectives. There were deep concerns about the majority, about the the, the level two that was more controversial. Um, so now the committee can can really look at those concerns from the churches because Synod sent that on, and they can deal with it. Um, so a change of this caliber should take time and, and mm -hmm. second sober thought as it were, and hopefully next synod will have something personally, maybe somebody's watching so I can give my advice already, but I think, I think we have to be careful because, uh, a church like heritage reformed churches 
should not be in a category two, right? We want, in North America, we want ecclesiastical fellowship with churches of similar confession and church order. So if we're going to have a, a contact level, let's say a level three, then or level one, that is, I guess, then the next thing after that should be that full ecclesiastical fellowship, right? The, the category two there isn't meant for not investing in them. We should invest in them because we have that similar heritage and culture and, and so on. So is there a way to have, uh, yeah, more? I, th I think we need a more gradual process. I have more thoughts, but I'll leave that for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're probably getting to the end of things. You didn't here, get put on that committee? No, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can't be on them all. Well, I, yeah, I think that's like, uh, I mean, that's probably all the major things that got dealt with at least. So, what are you looking forward to uh, for the next uh, in uh, Aldergrove? Well, you know, I, I think they'll they'll have to deal with all those psalms and hymns, and I'm sure they'll have to deal with the hymn cap again. Is my guess. Yeah. Um, I hope that they can, and somewhere, somehow, whatever is decided there. That, that we can have our book of praise and, and let it be ours and let it be ours for a generation, you know, instead of changing it. Yeah. So I think the, the book of praise will be a major issue, obviously. And same with that interchurch relations, those categories, that'll be a major thing. I wonder if we can use technology to have uh, the delegates of Synod all the growth vote for the executive, those four uh executive positions chair vice chair first and second clerk and then they could uh meet and assign us to these various committees that have to deal with the work of synod and let us know before we get there so uh, while we read everything i could really delve into the stuff that i i'm going to have to deal with as an advisory committee and that would save about half a day's work right so then when you got to synod they would open it formally, and then these four people would take their spots, and we could get to work. As it happened, we had to spend, a, let's say, half an hour, 45 minutes to do the voting. Um, and then these brothers had to spend about three, four hours or so, maybe more, dividing up the work. And the rest of us are standing around waiting. So with the technological advances, maybe there's a way to... To, to help increase efficiencies. And I know for myself, had I known I was working on this committee with the Book of Praise, I could have really focused my attention on it uh, before Synod started. So hmm. that's just a thought. Um, the way we've done it for years has worked. And so it's not necessary, but it, it could help. Hmm. Cool. That's a good suggestion, actually. I like that. You should write up an overture for next synod proposing that yeah <laughs> i suppose <laughs> i suppose that's something that could just be done uh yeah all the world can do it i think all the oh, yeah. they would decide to do it yeah because i mean even guelph decided to do a whole bunch of uh google drive technology so you know, we'll that's take right. that to the next level cool uh, good stuff i don't live in Aldergrove, so it's not my my problem it's good <laughs> All righty. You got anything else? No, I no. That's that's it. I appreciate uh, Chris you coming on and explaining this all to us. I've uh, talked to a few people who were at Synod, but it's good to really get into it and understand what goes into it and what uh, 
you know, what the discussions are like, it's really cool to understand the the committees inside a synod and how that gets kind of moved through the process. And yeah, I mean, you really understand why it takes, uh, you know, what was it? Nine working days to get through the agenda. And, uh, you know, we covered it in an hour, but, uh, but yeah, we also didn't decide anything. So <laughs> true. True. But, yeah. Thanks no, for thanks guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah no problem. Thanks so much. And yeah, thanks for, for people who are tuning in and listening this far. I mean, Obviously, you care about sitting if you want to to listen to this episode and learn. So that's pretty cool. And Our church order episode did well, so people should people be love the church order and synod. There you go. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris was just one guy who was there too. So if you take any issue with uh, Chris's opinions, you know, here's his email. No, just kidding. But you can, this uh, guy though, so you, you know, yeah, the rock star of the group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not quite the rock star. They put me on the standing committee for the Book of Praise for three years. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, there will be no rock and roll coming in the short term. Ah, shoot, <laughs> too bad. You get to work on uh, Lord's Supper forms then. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start crafting a, a, a version. There, there you go. go. Cool, but yeah, right on. All so, the best with that work. Thanks. Yeah. So, if you have any thoughts, obviously, listeners, send them in, and uh, we'll try to get to them in a feedback episode. And uh, yeah, if there's anything that Chris mentioned today that you feel like would uh, make a good podcast episode. Definitely let us know. I think the Lord's Supper one is one that's on our radar to talk mm-hmm. about. So with that, I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it's been a real talk. So we'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.